Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. I decided to begin today's introduction with a quote from the New York Times. A formidable musician and powerful communicator, a conductor with a vision of what an American orchestra could be in the 21st century. Meet Marin Alsop, one of the foremost conductors of our time, who is the first woman to serve as the head of a major orchestra, not only in the States, but South America, Austria, and the UK. Born into a musical family, Marin knew at age nine that she wanted to be a conductor after attending one of Leonard Bernstein's young people's concerts with her dad. Marin studied violin, attended Yale, and later transferred to and graduated from Juilliard, developing a successful freelance career as a violinist. While in Manhattan, she started an all-female string orchestra and swing band. In 1988, Marin was accepted at Tanglewood Music Center, where she reconnected with Bernstein, who thought she was a fabulous talent and encouraged her to, quote, be herself and stand up for her beliefs. Marin spent 14 years as music director of the Baltimore Symphony, during which she led the orchestra on its first European tour in 13 years. She's currently music director laureate and Orc Kids founder of the orchestra. Marin's had long-standing relationships with the London Philharmonic and London Symphony Orchestra and has regularly conducted with numerous ensembles. She's also the chief conductor of the Vienna Radio Symphony Orchestra and Ravinia Festival and is currently music director of the National Orchestral Institute of the University of Maryland. She's been recognized with numerous awards and was the first and only conductor awarded a MacArthur Fellowship. The Conductor, a documentary about her life, debuted at Tribeca in 2021. So let's meet this musical heavyweight. Marin, welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely from Paris today. Yes. I'm envious. <laughs> my pleasure, my pleasure. Why are you in Paris? Well, then again, somebody could say, well, why not, Sandy, for God's sake. Yeah, well, uh, I'm, I'm conducting the radio orchestra here uh, in concerts uh, this week. And I just came from London, where I was with the London Philharmonic. So fortunately, COVID did not reap its, um, <laughs> you know, its cancellation magic this time. And I've been able to get here and conduct these wonderful orchestras. So people are coming in person to hear and see the orchestras. I mean, that's, that's wonderful. Fortunately, um, I have to say that the, my concert last week in London was, it was a fantastic audience very well sold and so enthusiastic and we'll see how it is this week in Paris. But I, I, I did conduct early in the pandemic uh, here in Paris and the audiences turned out. And I, I think that people really are hungry for connection, for solace, for comfort and music brings that. And of course, participating in a live event, with other human beings is something that we've been denied for so long that it's really magical. Oh, for sure. But even so, as much as we'd like to do that, so much of this is out of our control, particularly when it comes to Broadway. I mean, every five minutes you're hearing about another show closing and it's really heartbreaking. It, it is so heartbreaking. I'm, I have so many, so many friends and so many wonderful colleagues who've really suffered through these times. And I hope that we can get back. I hope that we can move to a new normal soon where, where art 
can play more of a role in everybody's life again. Uh, it's, it, I mean, it's it's really a tragedy. New York without Broadway is a, wow. it, it just doesn't really work. Not at all. As a matter of fact, the other day I did have a link to a Broadway show called Clyde's, which is now closed. But to watch it from my desktop, not ideal, but at least I was able to see it. You have to create these new normals, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's what's been, um, I try to always look at the, the bright side of a situation. And I think the fact that we've we've embraced technology and we've tried to figure out a way to incorporate technology into what we do and disseminate what we do to a wider audience. I think that's, uh, I hope that's an upside that we can carry with us moving forward. No, I agree. Marin, let's go back in time. As I said in the introduction, that you knew at a very young age that you wanted to be a conductor and that you study violin. And let me just digress for one second and get very personal. I was slightly older than you were when I decided to take up, believe it or not, the trumpet. And I remember it being warm weather. My parents did eventually get central air in our home. But before they did, I would practice pretending that I was Louis Armstrong in my bedroom with the window open and playing the trumpet, well, playing is a term in quotes, and the neighbors did take up a petition and brought it to my parents and said, she's just got to stop or you've got to close the windows. You and I could have been on more divergent paths when we were when we were youngsters. Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry for your experience. Um, yeah, neighbors can be rough, but I had the opposite situation because my parents were both professional musicians. Ah. So they were constantly practicing. And, you know, the only thing they wanted for their only child was that, that I be a, become a musician. So they would have done anything, you know, and if it meant moving house, we would have done that too. <laughs> Where did you grow up? I grew up the first few years of my life um, on in a basement apartment on 107th and Amsterdam, and then oh, a Manhattan night, okay, yeah, mm-hmm. in Manhattan. And when they cobbled a little bit of money together, they bought a tiny little house in Dobbs Ferry, New York, and so mm-hmm. that's really where I grew up from about the age of six. And did either of your parents play violin? My father was a violinist. He was the concertmaster of the New York City Ballet Orchestra. Oh, wow. And my mother was a cellist, and she played in that orchestra also. And I actually subbed in that orchestra for many years as a violinist and even conducted a performance where my father was the soloist and my mother was playing in the orchestra. Oh, that's crazy. (laughs) Yeah, that was wild. That That was so much fun. Oh, I bet. So doing all those things when you were younger was very much a natural act for you? Well, I think because it was you know, day in, day out, that's what my parents did. I assumed everybody's parents, you know, were musicians and mm-hmm. went to work and played played shows in the evenings. And so it was so much part of my my existence, my daily life, that it felt very, very normal. And music wasn't just a, a, a job for them. It was also a, an, a vocation and an avocation. They loved playing chamber passion, music. Huh? Yeah, you know, they're crazy about music. So there was always chamber music in our house. There were always people coming over and rehearsing. And we had a little poodle who sang even. So there you go. 
as I also said in the introduction, that you wanted to be a conductor, which is an interesting dynamic as opposed to being first violinist, let's just say, because clearly you didn't see any women with a baton in front of an orchestra. It really didn't occur to me that I hadn't seen women conducting. I I don't know why. You know, I just assumed that there were a lot of women doing it and I just hadn't seen them yet. And it was really when I saw Bernstein and my dad took me to the young people's concert. And I don't think it was so much his conducting, although I was taken with that, but it was more his his passion about the music and the fact that he turned around and talked to us in the audience and shared his ideas about it. And he was so enthusiastic and he just wasn't rigid and buttoned down like all the other conductors I'd seen. You know, this guy was having a good time. And I thought, oh, okay, this classical music thing, maybe I can make it work if I'm the conductor because he's having a good time. So that really probably was my motivation. <laughs> what was your motivation to go to Yale first? You wanted a, a general education also? You know, growing up with two professional musicians and having an interest in other other areas. I was I was also quite interested in literature and languages and mathematics and you know all kinds of things, but my parents were very I mean they were also very eclectic and interesting people. They had lots and lots of hobbies, but they just wanted me to be a musician. They didn't understand, you know, why would you want to waste four years going to a school like Yale? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think they're the Mm -hmm. only parents on the planet that (laughs) ever said that, you know, when you could just go to Juilliard and just do the music and, you know, not worry about all this. And I think it was twofold. Part of it was my rebellion against my parents, you know, Uh when you're 16, you need that, you need to have that statement. Mm -hmm. And also, I believe that to be the best musician I could possibly be, I personally needed a broader exposure, a more well-rounded education. Mm-hmm. And I think knowing in the back of my mind that I wanted to become a conductor, I realized that the knowledge base I needed, which was much, much wider than anything I would get in a conservatory. And so that was my motivation. But I think primarily it was to annoy my parents. <laughs> Let's get political now as we travel back then. Where did you get off thinking that you could be a conductor? Well, the environment we grow up in is so critical to our sense of possibility, isn't it? It's it's amazing. I watched my parents. They both came from very, very modest, humble um, backgrounds. And they worked hard and they applied themselves. They were both real entrepreneurs in a way. My my dad loved building houses hmm. and renovating old houses. So they bought a couple of Victorian houses and together they would do all the work and renovate it. My mom, she decided at one point that she wanted to, you know, do something with her hands more than just play a cello. And she became a beautiful potter. I have all these dishes and lamps that she made. And then she started weaving and everyone I know has one of these beautiful scarves she made. So <laughs> I watched them just, you know, they didn't even have to have 
an iota of knowledge. They just had to have the vision. So I would watch them say, okay, you know, I think my dad said on our little house in Dobbsbury, he said, you know, we need a, we need a cathedral living room so that we can have a big chamber music hall. And, you know, my mother and I looked at him like he was insane. Mm -hmm. And then he dug a hole and he figured out how to build it. (laughs) You know, this was how it was done. And so I, I grew up in this environment where these people just, they had an idea and they said, okay, let's do it. And when I told them I wanted to become a conductor, they said what they always said, which was great. Let's just do it. Go ahead. You go for it. And this is the attitude, you know, it's, it was really a blessing to grow up in a household where that was the attitude. If you want to do it, you can do it. I think that that had to be almost anomalous. What year was that? So when I was born in 1956, so it was about 1966 when I decided I wanted to become a conductor. Mm-hmm. And I think I started dabbling with it probably around 1970, you know, in, in my teenage years and gathering friends together and trying things out. When I was an undergraduate at Yale, I tried getting some friends together now and then, and they were wonderful, wonderfully complying and and lovely people. And so, you know, this is where it, where it started gestating. Mm. And I was always thinking about it and always trying to educate myself and always trying to learn more because conducting is so much about, um, about, being the messenger of the composer, you know, right. you really have to understand the com- the creator, what he or she was experiencing. What were the politics during the time that the piece was written? What was the motivation? You know, it's psychological, it's social, it's political, and it's fascinating to me. So I was constantly reading and constantly looking at scores and, you know, eventually my friends, you know, I, I, I sort of ran out of room um, and I couldn't fit anybody <laughs> in, more in my apartment, you know, come over and I'll, I'll feed you pizza if you'll play a Mozart symphony for me. <laughs> and um, eventually I just decided to start my own orchestra. And I asked all of my friends to play. And that was like, it was a crazy, but it was a wonderful decision because I learned how to conduct from the people I loved. And they helped me not just technically, you know, what worked, what didn't work, but they also helped me with the interpersonal skills. You know, when you apologize, that's not the right vibe, but when you say this, this is helpful. You know, friends can be more honest or more direct, perhaps, Hmm. um, and, and, and helpful. And than than any other people. So it was really my friends who taught me how to conduct, and uh, and uh, I'll never be able to thank them enough. As I mentioned in the introduction, also when you were at Juilliard, and that you began this all female string orchestra and swing band, is that where you kind of cut your chops? Well, a part of me also was a little bit um, reluctant to commit a hundred percent to classical music because I felt that the rules were too rigid. 
And, you know, people were saying, oh, women can't conduct and, oh, you move too much. Oh, you're having too much fun. And I thought, oh, you know, this is such a drag, people. You really have to get with the program. You know, What life the hell has does to that be- mean you were having too much fun? How about you were really into it? Oh, yeah, you're smiling outrage. too much. Oh, you're into oh. it. Too- uh, yeah. And so I thought, oh, maybe I should be a, a rock and roll musician. That's what I thought. And, but of course, you know, rock and roll violin in 1979 wasn't a thing. And, um, so the only person I could talk into, um, writing some music for me was a guy who played with Woody Herman's band and he wrote us some swing music. And then I called all my friends. And after I'd called four or five people, I realized I'd called all, all women. And I thought, oh, let's make it all women. What the heck? So we ended up yeah. with this 14-piece, all-woman string swing band called String Fever. <laughs> and it took us a long time, but we figured out how to swing. We figured out how to improvise. And we had a blast. And we played together, believe it or not, for 20 years. No kidding. Yeah. And we still try to get together at least once a year. We don't play, but we're good at eating and drinking. Well, nothing wrong with that. So when you did that, did you perform all over the place or were you very centralized in terms of it being more Manhattan-ish? Well, we had a gig at Mikkel's Pub, which was up on 97th and Columbus. Um, So we played there every week for a few years, but then we traveled as well, you know, doing uh, single concert engagements around at universities all around the country. We were um, hired to play on the QE2 going over to um, the UK. Hmm. So we did that. And then we happened to run into um, uh, a producer, wonderful producer named uh, Phil Ramon. And he fell in love with the group. And he was an incredible um, producer. He discovered, I mean, discover, I don't know that maybe that's too strong a term, but his artists were people like Billy Joel. Mm -hmm. And so he fell in love with string fever. He was a violinist himself and he thought what we were doing was crazy cool. And so he hired us to play on all of Billy's albums. So if you look on the, if you look on the albums, you'll see string fever. And so we got to know a lot of the, a lot of the pop stars of the day. And um, we just had a great time with it. And it was so different from the button-down experience of the classical music world. And, sure. you know, the idea that you you can step out and improvise something, that was completely new for all of us. And mm-hmm. it, was, it was really liberating. What was that like for you, giving birth to the swing band and the female string orchestra and not playing? Did you miss not playing? Did you just say, I'm just going to push this off to the side for the time being? That conducting well, was more... Well, I played with String Fever. I, I led the group from the first violin position, so I played. It wasn't until I started my orchestra, which was called Concordia, um, that I put the violin down and, and just conducted the orchestra. But I kept playing right until I was about 30, um, because, uh, first of all, it was my, it was my method of earning money. Sure. And also I love playing the violin. I love playing chamber music. I love playing in the orchestra, everything. I made a promise to myself that 
when when I could support myself conducting, I would stop playing. And so after Tanglewood, well, I went to Tanglewood in 1988, and then I won my first um, position as assistant conductor of the Richmond Symphony in Richmond, Virginia. And although the salary was, I think, about one-third of what I was earning as a studio musician in <laughs> New York, I had promised myself, okay, you know, I'm just going to I'm going to leave New York. And so I packed up and I moved to Richmond, Virginia. And I started my life as a conductor. And all everybody thought I was crazy. All my friends were like, oh, you're leaving Manhattan? You've got to be kidding me. And of course, I kept coming back. But for me, that was the only way to to really forge a path and and push myself out into the into this new world. But as I watched the documentary, the means to your end, conducting all these wonderful orchestras so worldwide, was it a slog? Were you always pushing a rock up a hill, having to deal with your gender? Yeah, I, you know, I think the easier, the easy answer is probably a resounding yes. (laughs) Hmm. There were always... um, challenges. Whether they were gender-related or early on related to how young I was as a conductor or... Oh, that too. Mm. You know, they're related to the fact that I was American. That's another... uh, (laughs) So that's three strikes. Three strikes, right. Um, But I think... I think conducting, it's fraught with challenge regardless of your gender... Um, I think one of my, one of the strong, strong decisions I made was to try never to interpret rejection as gender based because Hmm. I tried to take every rejection and I can speak for every single conductor, male or female. There are a lot of rejections in this industry and I tried to take every rejection and, and turn it as much as I could into an opportunity to figure out how I could be better at what I do or what, what didn't enable me to get that position or whatever. So I really tried to use, use these obstacles to improve myself. Mm-hmm. And I find that that's, you know, if I had said to myself, well, I probably didn't get that because I'm a woman that gives you a pass, you know, it just lets you kind of slide by. But if you say, well, I didn't get yeah. this because I need to be better, then then you're constantly striving toward another level. Another takeaway from the film, I don't mean to keep belaboring a certain point. It was just you standing there. A year or so ago, I had the honor and pleasure of interviewing a woman named Kalina Bovell, who is um, an assistant conductor. I know Kalina very well. What a lovely person. She was just wonderful. I'm wondering, Marin, do you count on one hand how many other Marins and Kalinas are out there in, you know, 2022? Well, you know, one of the one of the great things of today is that there are many more of us now. And I think there have always been some incredibly talented women, but there was no platform for them. There was, there were no opportunities. And 
Sandy, something that struck me very strongly was that I didn't see the landscape changing. You know, it seemed like, okay, there's a handful of us and we're always mentioned together in the article or, you know, in the maybe there's a half dozen and the numbers don't seem to grow. And huh. I kept thinking, oh, there's going to be more women. There's got to be more women. Right. And then I finally turned around after, you know, five, 10, 15 years. And I thought, okay, this is ridiculous. If I don't try to change this paradigm, who on earth is going to? So that's when I founded a fellowship for women conductors. And it's called Taki, the Taki Alsop Conducting Fellowship. And we started it in 2002. So we're about to celebrate our 20th anniversary. And uh, we're about to announce six new awardees. And um, someone you know might be among those. And, um, Hmm. you know, seeing these women, they're 24 so far, and now they'll be 30. Seeing their achievements and connecting with them and seeing the community that we've been able to build I feel very hopeful because as you so astutely pointed out, conducting is a very, um, it's a very lonely profession. Mm. It's you standing up there in front of a hundred people and you have to navigate it all. But you know, when you have 30 other women that you can turn to and talk to and get advice from and get support from, it really makes a difference. And I think that it must be very heartening for you. Yeah. Oh, it's so, I'm so proud of them all and so inspired by them all. Because the other thing I notice is that they're not just conductors, these women. I mean, they're, they're super conductors, of course, but they're, <laughs> they're not just conductors. They're engaged citizens of the world. They're women who want to make a difference and they're using music as the vehicle to change the world. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about how this worked for you. Were orchestras knocking down your door, whether it be you know the Vienna Radio Symphony or the Ravinia Festival? How did that come about? And do you like the fact that you that you don't necessarily have a home base? Well, I you know I loved my tenure with the Baltimore Symphony, and Baltimore really does feel like home. I teach, I'm the head of the conducting department, uh, graduate conducting department at Peabody Institute. So I'm very, I'm very committed and rooted in Baltimore. So I still feel that that's my home base. And I continue to do a few weeks every year with the orchestra and, you know, continue to stay connected to the orchids program that I started there. So while I don't have a music directorship um, with a um, a full-time orchestra in the States, I don't feel disconnected. And, you know, my current engagements have been, um, they're so wonderful. I mean, I love my new orchestra in Vienna, the Radio Symphony. And that came about in a very beautiful way because the musicians went to the management and asked them to, I had guest conducted there and asked the management to try to see if I would come and be their chief conductor. So it was very, um, very welcoming. 
And it, it's a wonderful collaborative experience. And my experience at Ravinia with the Chicago Symphony is is phenomenal. I, I've fallen in love with that orchestra. So I guess I feel like I have the best of all possible worlds right now. Where's your home base? It's in Baltimore. And then, it is uh, in Baltimore, yeah. Yeah, and then I also have a, um, an apartment in Vienna. Pandemic notwithstanding, how is your year divided up? Are you here more, there more? I'm trying to figure out how you juggle all these balls in the air. Yeah, Why do no, you find I, you, Marin? Yeah, it's Maybe a I little, um, it's a bit tricky. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I had anticipated slowing down a little bit, you know, through the COVID and, you know, and leaving Baltimore. But I have to say that things, I don't know what happened. I turned around and every, my calendar was on fire. So I'm just busier than ever. I'm, I'm doing a lot of work in Europe for sure. And, um, I'm enjoying it because I, while I was music director of Baltimore, I put Europe on the back burner a little bit. So Mm -hmm. now I can refocus again over here, which is really fun. Um, and you know, it's a, it's a big jigsaw puzzle, of course, and it's all a balancing act. And I'm sure I have not achieved any type of life work balance whatsoever. I'm still looking for that. Does it matter? Well, you know, yeah, it depends who you ask, I suppose. (laughs) I'm curious, what was that like to be followed around by filmmakers for the documentary, The Conductor? Oh, well, you know, I get up nowadays and I'm like, okay, where's my film crew? Hey, where is everybody? You know, um, you know, listen, it had, it had its challenges, of course, but I got to know the director, Bernadette Wegenstein, uh, very, very well. And, you know, there were so many, so many incredible coincidences, uh, the, not the least of which is that we both teach at uh, Hopkins. Uh, she's uh-huh. from Vienna originally. There was so much um, uh, in common, and I really trusted her. And I felt that I felt I never felt that it was an invasion of my life or my privacy. And I could always be honest and say, "Listen, that's enough for today," or you know, "I'm I'm full up for today." But mm-hmm. I, I don't mm-hmm. really recall ever ever having to say that because she was always very sensitive and. Um, her team and her crew, uh, wonderful people and and great artists. I'm a broken record when it comes to documentaries and the power to expose and to teach us. And to me, documentaries should not necessarily be shown in movie theaters. They should be shown in classrooms to expose young people to all different aspects of life. Certainly includes the conductor. Well, I hope, um, I hope that people come away from the film having an understanding of what the conductor does and what the role is and what the relationship is to the composer, to the music. I think one of the beautiful aspects of the film is how the music itself is a character. You know, it's really woven in. It's a, it's a film filled with music, Mm. you know, it's just dripping with beautiful music. And I have to say that I, I've been very um, touched by non-musicians or non-classical music people saying, oh, I fell in love with this piece and, oh, I love that Mahler stuff. Mm, And so, mm. you know, I I hope that the film 
um, has a lot of ripple effects, uh, not the least of which is, is um, having people fall in love with some of these pieces. If I was your fairy godmother, although God knows you don't need me, what <laughs> would you ask of me? Oh, gosh. Uh, let's see. You mean in terms of the political situation or work? Do you mean no. in terms of... <laughs> oh, God. In terms well, I, of, I, I'm afraid I won't be able to help you in that department. I don't yeah, think. okay. No, um, mm-hmm. no I'll make it a little well, more personal. I, I don't lack for anything. And... I don't feel I don't feel that I haven't been able to try my hand at everything I've been interested in. So I guess I would say um maybe give the give the granting of wishes to someone else who needs it more huh. than I do because I I feel you know I mean not to sound trite but I I'm really happy <laughs> and I have no <laughs> no regrets really that you can look back at your rich and rewarding life and absorb all of that. I mean, that doesn't happen a lot. It speaks volumes for you. It speaks volumes for the people in your world and also the potency of who you are and what you do. Well, thank you. And of course, you know, I should say that probably, probably the thing I'm the most proud of is watching my beautiful 18 year old son, um, become a, an adult and, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's always a struggle for everyone, isn't it? I mean, oh, hello. making mm-hmm. that, crossing that barrier from childhood into adulthood is such mm-hmm. a, such an incredible journey and such a, such a tough struggle, but he's doing it so valiantly and, and so successfully. And, and that makes me incredibly proud. Does music factor into his life? <laughs> you know, it's, that's a funny, funny question. So we had a deal that he would play the violin through high school mm-hmm. and he did. And then he won the music award at his high school and he had to play at the graduation. Uh-huh. And the minute that was over, the violin went in the closet <laughs> and that's the end of it. But he's been telling me that he's been writing songs lately. So who knows, maybe the, maybe his musical education and background will, will play a role in his life somewhere. You know, as parents, all we can do is expose our kids right, to things. Right, We right. can't force them. And, uh, I mean, I forced him for 18 years, and I think that was enough. <laughs> I can personalize that also because I loved going to the theater, and we would schlep our sons to the theater. And it wouldn't matter if it was the Book of Mormon or whatever. I think that they were big young men, and so the seats were always so uncomfortable, but it would be, no, we don't want to go to the theater. Although my younger son didn't turn me down when I got him a ticket to Hamilton, so I must have done something Oh, see, there you go. There you go, right? Well, Maren, it was really great to get to know you and hear all about your passion and your life, and there you are in Paris. You think you might be able to bring home a few croissants? (laughs) Oh, yeah, they they might get eaten, though, before I get home. I hope you don't mind. I don't mind at all. <laughs> but so you're back in the States, and then when's your next European foray? I'll be back in the States for one week, and then I go to Vienna, and then back oh to Chicago. So it's crazy. You just don't stay one place very, very long. Well, thank you for staying one place long enough to have this conversation with us. It's just been oh, a joy. Oh, it was joy my pleasure. And- Thanks so much for 
I really enjoyed meeting you and hearing all about your life and your work. And again, the documentary is called The Conductor. And so thank you again. And uh, keep us in your loop and let us know what's going on in your your life. We'd love to know. I definitely will. Thank you, Sandy. Totally my pleasure. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.